I had my children on the floor. I was on my favorite blanket that my grandmother gave me on the floor like a cat. And I realized in that moment the potential of what our bodies can really do as women. Like I could feel his head, I could do my own internal, like yeah, his head, I could feel it. I was in tears, I was just in tears and overwhelmed with gratitude. Hi and welcome to the Natural Birth Podcast, the podcast that is bringing embodied birth wisdom from women from all over the world sharing their natural birth stories. Don't forget to subscribe and download so that you can always have access to these empowering and positive natural birth stories. Hi, my name is Anna, also known as the Spiritual Midwife, and I am the Natural Birth Podcast host. I'm a midwife and a childbirth educator, and I assist women in optimizing their chances of having an empowering and natural birth experience and a nourishing and healing postpartum. I offer holistic birth preparation and postpartum online courses worldwide for the conscious mama wanting to prepare emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually for her birth and for her postpartum. And if you want to know more about me and what I do in the world, then visit me at thenaturalbirthcourse.com. If you had a natural and empowering birth experience that you would like to share with the world, then you can email me at midwife at gmail.com and maybe your story will be featured on the Natural Birth Podcast. Now let's dive into today's episode. Today we have Katie. Katie is a lactation consultant and a midwife with exceptional breastfeeding knowledge. And she's also the co-host of the Midwife's Cauldron podcast with Rachel Reed that I interviewed previously in this season. And it's such an honor to have her on for a bonus episode all about breastfeeding. She's going to give you so much amazing information in an easy to digest format and a bit funny too that will make a world of difference on your breastfeeding journey. Get your paper and pen out because you might want to take some notes. Curious about Katie? Find her on Instagram as The Midwife's Cauldron. Hi Katie and welcome to The Natural Birth Podcast. It's so amazing to have you on on this bonus episode all about breastfeeding. Thanks Anna, it's so lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. So lovely. I, I just want to mention to all the listeners that we're both sitting on you know, the opposite end of the world. You're sitting with your hot water bottle in a freezing Switzerland, <laughs> and I'm sitting here sweating my arse off <laughs> at 6 p.m. still with the fan blasting and doors open and just <gasps> dripping. Anywho, we're not going to talk about my sweat. <laughs> we're going to talk about... <laughs> my freezing toes. Yeah. So we don't, we're going to dive into breastfeeding today because you are a lactation specialist and a midwife and you have so much knowledge about breastfeeding. And I know that this is a topic that, especially in the Commonwealth countries, 
So the UK and Australia and the US, um, there is this fear amongst first-time mamas around, will I be able to breastfeed or not? Something that me as a Swedish person uh, never have come across in Sweden. I've never heard a woman ever express that she is feeling you know, uncertain if she can breastfeed her baby before she has a baby. Um, and so mm. I really want to talk about this because actually the people who listen to the Natural Birth podcast, the biggest chunk of them are from the US and from Australia and also um, from the UK and from New Zealand and, and, and lots of other countries. But the big chunk is actually from the Commonwealth countries. So I think this will be an amazing topic for especially first-time mamas about to have their babies who might be worried about, will I be able to breastfeed? So what do you have to say about this question? <laughs> oh, so much, but you're right. And it's, and definitely in my experience as well, there's, there's definitely certain countries, it's a cultural thing and it, it stems back to, you know, history, how we are currently birthing our babies and, and the fears that go with birth and then what's happening with breastfeeding. And the most common thing I hear, and you probably do as well, is, um, you know, what's your plans for feeding your baby? I'm going to give breastfeeding a try if I can do it. Yeah. It's this type of language that we hear and is being used. And we actually know when we look at the science that um, self-efficacy, so how we feel in ourselves, how um, self-confident we feel is actually really going to help us in terms of how we start breastfeeding and how we deal with any issues or problems which may arise and whether or not we get through them. And so if we're planting that seed of doubt and almost saying, I'll do it if I can, I'll give it a go, and these kind of negative thoughts rather than saying, no, I'm going to bloody do it. And, you know, if, if, I, if I get stuck, then I'll get some help. And, but I want to breastfeed. And you're listening to what your body's saying. And for most women, it is this, I want to breastfeed. Mm. Say it out loud. Start telling yourself this mm. and know that, okay, I'm going to breastfeed. I may have some problems along the way, mm. but there's people out there who can help me. And I'm going to use those support services because I'm going to get through this. Totally. And just what you're saying, just that kind of, I mean, gosh, you know, you, you conceived a baby, you, you nurtured and protected it and grew, mm-hmm. created life inside of, like your body can do that. Why do you doubt that you could both birth, obviously your baby, but also being able to breastfeed? And, you know, so to me, as a Swedish person who has never heard that before, coming to Australia and working here and, and hearing women, because I've had women ask me this, mamas uh, who are about to have a baby and women who still are not pregnant have asked me that, you know, saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a bit nervous about if I'm going to be able to or not. And so I was wondering, like, why is this? Why is this something that is cultural? Where does this stem from? Do you have a good answer to that? Yeah, it, a big part of it. So I can really talk about the UK because there's a real history there. And also in terms of the UK has the lowest breastfeeding rates in the world, which is shocking. Really? I'm so surprised about that. Yeah. We actually have a really high initiation rate. And this is what's so sad is that women want to breastfeed, but actually nine out of 10 women say that they stopped before they wanted to, which is wow. really sad. 
But when we look back at the history, and there's a mixed history, but a big part of it was actually to do with the Second World War. And what happened was all of the men and, you know, young men of dad-bearing age at that time went to war and the women stayed home and they had to work and they had to suddenly stop being housewives and they had this opportunity to go out and work. And national formula was introduced by the government and given out to women so that they could feed their baby an alternative to breastfeeding because breastfeeding obviously at that point in time tethers you to a baby and you couldn't go out to work yeah and then what we see from that point is obviously you know there's a huge rise in terms of women want to have opportunities go to work and then we see the rise in the use of formula milk and we saw the massive rise in the advertising yeah. from you know there's if you google any sort of old nestle um adverts from the 50s they are one hilarious if you can look at it that way and two incredibly scary because they compare and even say that they're better for the baby and you get doctors recommending them and they're just and what happened was throughout the sort of until really the 70s and 80s there was this mass mass marketing that got more and more and it became cultural to formula feed And we kind of lost the art, particularly for women who were working, and that became more and more, particularly in the cities. It became the norm. So then what happened was the next generation came along and their mums hadn't breastfed. And, of course, formula feeding has its benefits, so to speak, in terms of for a lot of women, they think, you know, they can have more of a scheduled feeding You can know how much milk is going into your baby. They tend to feed less frequently, not always. But so this is the general prospect, you know, how we think Mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. And so now we're on third and fourth generations who haven't actually seen anyone breastfeed. Wow. Or they might be in a community where this is just not seen. And the other problem then is that if you're the one person who starts to breastfeed, I mean, I have friends like that in certain parts of Britain and um, they felt like a pariah, like everyone's looking at me. I, I feel I can't go out. I can't breastfeed in public. And we have women who are in a, a society where breastfeeding is accepted and they feel uncomfortable those first few times. Yeah. One of my friends stopped breastfeeding just for that reason. Her breastfeeding was going absolutely brilliantly but she just felt trapped in the house because she was so she just felt so exposed so Mm. seen so uncomfortable and if you are the only person in your friendship group and in society of course that affects our mental health and our well-being and how we connect with our baby so breastfeeding is never just food and so there is this history of why it happened. And then, you know, so we sort of see where we're at. Luckily, we're kind of reclaiming that. And we're seeing now that sort of 10 years ago, so to speak, maybe a little longer, women really, particularly in the cities in the UK, are really starting to breastfeed. The problem then becomes how much confidence do they have to continue breastfeeding and what support is there? And then what are we doing in birth? 
then affects breastfeeding. Mm. Mm. Obviously. Yes. Uh, yeah, de- definitely. Birth has so much to do with the initiation of breastfeeding and how well you do initiate, if you even get the chance to initiate a birth totally. and all of that. Yeah. Gosh, that is a massive topic, that one too. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's so great to have you on. I go, gosh, I can just listen to you all day. I just, I love talking about breastfeeding. I think this is, it's so important. And I, and I feel, and you probably feel that too, like it is being reclaimed by women. Like so many things, yeah. us women are reclaiming being woman, you know, that just the actual being woman. Like, yes, I have breasts. They are not just here to look pretty and be beautiful for men. No, they are going to feed my baby. Here's my tip. I am going to feed my baby. If you're offended, turn around, you know. Women are starting to reclaim so many things around being a woman. And I love that. And it's great. Mm. But the problem then comes that we haven't, it's almost a bit like the support services and you know, the postnatal service has always been called, as far as I'm aware, in the UK and Australia, the Cinderella service. Like, mm. it's not where the money goes. No. And this is where the problem comes, is, is women are, are starting to listen to their bodies and they know what they want and they're going into this. And then they get stuck maybe with problems and there isn't the support that's there or the knowledge. And that's what's really sad. And and I think that's one of my biggest things if if women, if anyone's listened to this and to take away is if you've breastfed in the past and it's not gone well, or, or if it doesn't go well this time for whatever reason, we need to stop this mum guilt. Yeah. It is not our fault. It is the system. The system's still not perfect, as we know. <laughs> it's mm. not just breastfeeding, mm. but we've we've got a lot of learning still to do we we there's a lot that needs to be done and there are some great systems out there and there are some awesome awesome birth workers and people in this field but we need to stop this mum guilt but there are things that we can do to help get breastfeeding off to a good start Mm. definitely and Mm. knowledge is power obviously yes and we're still going to dive into that um in this episode you mentioned that, you know, there's almost no money going into the postnatal period. And this is something that, and you say, you know, and, and also like, you know, the system is failing, which is really the truth. And also our communities are failing or, you know, our society as a whole, in a sense, are failing to support a mother. Our society is not set up for women having babies. It's set up as a factory, isn't it? Like for a factory worker. And yeah. And that is also part of what I feel like I get goosebumps thinking about this, like where we need to reclaim this as women going, like we are fundamental part of this world. Like we bring life into the, into the planet. Like, oh my gosh, we should be celebrated and honored and cared for. We should not have all these women with postnatal depression and, the, and depression and, and, you know, broken women that we see in our Western society, yeah. so many broken women in the postnatal period, um, we should not be seeing this. Our, our, not just our, you know, our, the system's failing, like our society's failing. And us as women, we need to reclaim this. You know, this is a part of the reclaiming of, of being a woman, like reclaiming birth as a rite of passage, reclaiming the postnatal period, reclaiming a society that is more communal and tribal that we used to see where women help women, where men help women, where the society as a whole mm. help women as we birth the new generation. Hallelujah. 
there I got it out. (laughs) (laughs) Hallelujah. Absolutely. It's, yeah, there's so much that's been lost and taken from us. And I think that there is this collective movement in certain areas that we are really coming together as women and seeing, you know, what women offer as as so powerful. And, you know, this whole, as my wonderful co-host on our podcast, Rachel Reed talks about the rite of passage, which is, you know, this whole journey into motherhood. And it's not just the birth, it's going into that postnatal period as well. This is fundamental. It's part of that transition. There's huge processes that are taking place once a baby has been born and that connection, that bonding. And that's not just like, okay, the first hour is the golden hour and we need to um, make sure we have that. It's, it's these weeks, it's these months, you know, other, you will have heard people call it the fourth trimester. And there's a reason for that. You know, these first 12 weeks are precious. They don't need to be rushed. You know, in so many cultures, we would be having confinement or you would have the mother or the sisters looking after the woman and providing meals. And so much in our sort of, you know, high economic countries like Oz and the UK and and the US, we have poor maternity leave for some of them. We have this pressure to get our bodies back looking like an Instagram model and we need to be a yummy mummy. And by four weeks, you should be out having coffees and going to the yoga class and blah, blah, blah. And actually, do you know what? Most of us want to still be in our pajamas at 1 p.m. And we may have eaten a piece of toast with a bit of peanut butter for four meals. Mm. And we're just, we're surviving. But we want to be able to make new mums feel like they're thriving. Yes, and I was just going to say, not survive, but thrive. Yeah. Yeah. And... And I think when so many women are doing this alone or a big chunk of it's alone, Mm. focus is often on the new baby, Mm. not the new mum. And we see this in so many ways in terms of, you know, baby showers and the presents are all for the baby Mm. or they're a present to, you know, giving breast pumps at uh, an antenatal Mm. baby shower. Like why? You don't need this or you need it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and you might need it and you might want it, but you know, there's other ways of celebrating the mother and, and being nurturing. And as friends, that friendship, that, that shepherd's pie or whatever, that Mexican chili con carne Mm. that you have bought round that will do her for three meals that you put into the freezer and Mm. the hand massage and the make her a cup of tea. And even, do you know what, do you want me to just rub your shoulders or you let her sleep because the baby needs, has had a really good feed and otherwise is fine. And I'm not saying people should stop the breastfeeding or instinctive feeding, but there's times when, the mum just needs a bit of sleep. Also her partner. Yeah. Because you know what? They're also going through this and doing those feeds mm. every hour and a half at night and through the day. Mm. And that for me is a greater gift that you can give as a, a mother, a grandmother, a sister, or a friend. Mm. And is it's about nurturing. Mm. And this postnatal period is totally mum 
hubby's having her fourth trimester, it needs to be an external womb. Yeah. And then as she comes out of this kind of cocoon and this sort of the brain that's switched off kind of in, in labor is doesn't suddenly totally switch on. It wants to be cave woman. It wants to be like, what? How many nappies? I, I don't know. Like, mm. I just, this baby's just beautiful. And oh, I feel sleepy because I've had a breastfeed. Maybe I want to just sleep when the baby sleeps and stop thinking about it. Like, yeah. you want to be in your PJs and you want to have a sleep when the baby sleeps and it's 4 p.m.? Brilliant. Yeah. This is what's going to get you through. You might not leave the house much for four or six weeks. Mm. But your body's, that's what it wants you to do. And that is the best environment to be in a loving, supporting environment and getting all your kind of basic needs met by others is the best way to also initiate breastfeeding and really establish that breastfeeding in the beginning, isn't it? And I know I love that I heard this, maybe there is studies now, but there was this anecdotal information coming out, you know, after a few months of COVID that babies were returning to birth weight much quicker and breastfeeding rates were going up and um because women were just in their homes with their babies and there was not those you know external pressure and they weren't being social and they weren't distracted they were just bonding and breastfeeding that's absolutely right there's a really good study actually um by amy brown and if um anyone wants to read any great books particularly about breastfeeding uh look up amy brown she is an awesome researcher and writer Mm. um and i would highly recommend her um she did a study and they looked at i think it was about 1200 mums um and what they found was that the women who there was a i think see i don't have the study in front of me i think it was mm. around 27% of women had actually had a good experience through covid because they had had reduced visitors they had just been in their little cocoon and they'd been able to switch themselves off and just breastfeed and just do what they needed to do, which is sleep, no expectations, no having to make tea for everyone else and go to the bakers and get cakes because she's got visitors coming, which hell no. Hello. <laughs> she just had a baby. Um, but also there was the, the biggest group of women were those women who were in, you know, lower socioeconomic areas they had no access to maybe outside in during lockdown so this was a study during the lockdown in the uk um and those women who had had uh, more complicated births they didn't have as much access to wi-fi they didn't have um you know they might be living in an apartment block where they couldn't go outside these women struggled and they are having poor breastfeeding rates because they weren't able to get access to the support systems they needed online mm. or through friends. And they didn't have the lifestyle where they could go, do you know, I'll just sit in my garden and enjoy mm. the spring. They had much more stress on them. So there was definitely that big divide between the women and what we have and what mm. we didn't have. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. I can definitely some imagine. good stories and some yeah. really sad stories. Oh, obviously. Gosh, yes, absolutely. Oh, obviously, yes. Yeah, it was just a little bit of light there, but um Oh yeah, totally. And more home births and also less yeah. preterm births as well, we've seen mm. in the research. Yeah, isn't that mm. interesting? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Mm. Stress maybe? Don't know. 
Yes, that makes pressure. you think. Mm. Mm. Very interesting. Well, we're kind of diverting off to other topics yeah. here. So let's <laughs> come back to breastfeeding. <laughs> so what I really want to ask you today to, because I'm sure that there are many first-time mamas who have the similar question, is what are the most common issues that you see with first-time mamas when it comes to breastfeeding, those who struggle, mm. and how can they prevent it? I know those are two very big, both of them. So let's start with the first one and let's see where we go. I suppose really the most common, the most common are, and that's also supported by the research, most common is sore, damaged nipples. So I'll come back to that. And the other one is low milk supply or perceived low milk supply. I was just going to say I get like hives from that. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. So, I love that. I, I can't wait okay. to hear. <laughs> and I mean, I'm saying nothing new to you because you're seeing and hearing it all the time because this is what's happening. These are the two biggest reasons why women stop breastfeeding in the first month. So let's start with sore nipples. They're obviously most women have not had someone suck on their nipple and breast eight to 12 times a day for continuously. Mm. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not speculating here, but most (laughs) women haven't unless they've had a baby. Mm. Um, So, you know, babies, when they're born, they will feed incredibly frequently. And in the first few days until really the colostrum phase has stopped. So the first milk we produce is colostrum. We start making that from around about 20 weeks, a little bit before. Um, And there's a hormone that stops us from making large quantities of it. So we just make it in small quantities. Colostrum is awesome. It's like honey. It's just like your baby's first immunization packed full of just awesome, awesome antibodies, human milk, oligosaccharides, everything to protect this baby. It's not really there to fill them up. What it does is it's like a glucose injection to the brain just to keep the brain going and everything functioning. But it doesn't want to overload them. So it's just letting their system settle. And so it's not like they're being given a three-course meal. And so guess what? When you're not given a three-course meal and you've just done labor and you're pretty hungry and your food supply that was 24-7 through the umbilical cord is suddenly disappeared. You don't suddenly go, oh, do you know what? I might, I might feed four hourly. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. Mm-mm. Oh no. Your baby will probably want to feed every hour, maybe every 45 minutes, maybe every hour and a half. They might feed constantly for an hour and a half and then have two hours sleep. Mm. And this will go on for roughly two to three days. I mean, the average is anywhere from 24 hours to 72 hours, but we tend to see more women towards the end of the third day on their first baby in terms of the volumes of milk increasing. Yeah. So these babies are feeding very, very frequently. The other thing is that, yes, it's about how babies attach. So sore nipples come from babies not latching or attaching correctly. And it's called breastfeeding for a reason because they're not just sucking on the end of the nipple, hopefully. Mm. 
Mm, I love so, that. yeah. And so, but the other thing is, it's a skill that the baby and the mum are learning. And like anything, you know, you don't learn to drive a car and you get the keys to the car and you go, great, I'm off. I'm ready to go. Don't need any lessons here. Uh, and I know what I'm doing and I feel 100% confident. So each feed, some of them will be fabulous. Some of them you'll get support with. And some of them you're just going to be at three in the morning and you're exhausted and you think it's okay. And then it's probably not perfect, but that's everybody. Yeah. So we see that soreness and women describe it differently in the research. And some women describe it as discomfort. Some women describe it as really painful soreness. And when I talk about soreness, I talk about soreness without damage. Mm. So we see that this is a normal phenomenon between days three and five. That's when it peaks. Mm. So, you know, often you're here in classes talking about, you know, if breastfeeding, if you're doing breastfeeding and there's any pain, it's not right. Mm. Yes and no, um, because there is for some women this, this peak of just like bloody hell, this baby's fed 15 times a day. And I'm sore because it's fed 15 times a day and there's going to be times when it's not been great. But if there's no cracks, there's no opening or, or wounds on the nipple, mm. then it's probably just going to be this sort of peak of soreness. Make sure you're getting good support to get this attachment, this latch as a breast feed, not just a nipple feed. Mm. And then we start to see that by around day seven, this nipple soreness subsides and so it's really this first week and that's sort of within the realms of normal so I think for me you know I've been a lactation consultant 15 years I've been a midwife 20 and I think it's really important to know to I think women and what they've told me and what I've seen and what I've read and research is that if you have this awareness you feel more in control that Mm. this possibly could happen and this is within the realms of normal. It doesn't mean I'm saying if you have soreness to ignore it. I always think getting good support is vital and mm. regular support is vital. But if this soreness continues past that first week, if you have cracks, if you have bleeding, which of course we hear these horror stories, but it does happen, mm. then this is a definite sign that you need some extra support to look at that attachment, to look in your baby's mouth. And we see so much online about tongue ties and everything else, but most problems with soreness and damage is basic. We call it PNA, positioning and attachment. Mm. And sometimes it is, you know, sometimes I would go in and they would have called me in and I'd be working as a lactation consultant and I'd go, hi, I'm Katie, I'm a lactation consultant. I walk in and the mum already crying. She's like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Mm. And I'm like, are you happy for me to just have a look at how you're breastfeeding? Show me what you're doing. And I've made one adjustment and I've said to her, some mums find it easier if you maybe just move the baby like this and then try an attachment. And she's like, oh, oh my God, just because everything's aligned better. And I used to think I get paid to do this job. 
what a great job. Wow, that was super easy. And other times it needs much more support. Mm. So, but it can be as simple as just changing position or someone pointing it out in a different way. Do you want a natural birth, Mama? Then a natural birth course might be for you. Do you see birth as a rite of passage and an important and transformational event that you'd like to feel fully empowered in meeting? Are you, like many other women, realizing that it is time to take back your power as a birthing woman in the birth space and birth your baby your way? Would you like to feel calm and confident as you birth your baby with all the tools you need in order to meet the labor sensations naturally and be ready body, mind and soul? Do you deeply down know that your body was made to birth your baby and that you have all the inherent power and inner wisdom to do so? Are you looking for holistic midwifery wisdom and guidance to assist you and give you all the evidence-based information you need in order to feel fully sovereign in your decision-making around your pregnancy and upcoming birth? Then the natural birth course is for you. Find out more at thenaturalbirthcourse.com. And I do want to mention here, because I think this is really important, and this is something that comes up everywhere I've worked, everyone I've spoken to and in research with breastfeeding is women say they get so much conflicting advice. Yeah. And I just want to try and put that in context. And I want to try and reframe it because, and I talk about this when I talk to midwives and nurses and doctors, but I also talk about it with with women and mums, it's a bit like if we are asked to, and I'm taking an an analogy from a wonderful colleague of mine. I'm going to pinch it because I love it. She used to say, if we're making a chocolate cake and I ask all of you, like in this antenatal class, say 10 women, give me your chocolate cake recipe. It's all going to be different. Some will use almond meal. Some will use flour. I like hazelnut chocolate cake some will use cocoa powder some use butter some make it vegan Mm. at the end of the day we've got a chocolate cake and hopefully tasty I mean who doesn't like chocolate cake I love it um but they've been different recipes and so when you're getting that support you're going to get different recipes different advice Mm. it doesn't mean that the person who gave you advice before was wrong It just means that you've got maybe a new midwife on shift and she's thinking, one, we're at a different stage. So the breast is developing and changing in shape and size as the milk comes in each hour. Two, you may have damage on your nipple. So she's thinking, okay, well, I'm going to change that position up because maybe I'll put the tongue in a different position or place. Mm -hmm. Three, she's thinking, well, she's tried this, so maybe I'll give her something else to do. Mm. And that's why the recipe changes. 
So for me, going into it thinking that you're going to get these different pieces of advice, that's a good thing. Because Mm. then, I mean, when I see women and I see them each day, my advice changes depending on what's happening that day or that hour or with the baby or with her breasts that have suddenly got milk in. And so I will always say my job is that I've got a head full of information. I'm going to try out what I think might work. Some of it's not going to. Yeah. So you say, this happens. This is great. I love this one. And I go, bloody marvelous. Take <laughs> that bit. Yeah, brilliant. I love that you say that because it is, it is something I hear a lot as well. And, you know, also, you know, having been a midwife on shift, it can be a bit frustrating when you've had this rapport with this woman and you've created this plan oh, yeah. and then all of a sudden it changes. But it also is a gift because in that there are, you know, pearls of wisdom that each midwife does bring and you as a mom get to cherry pick. So yes. when you get all this different advice instead of feeling overwhelmed, which I really do understand that women do though, you mm. can think about it as, okay, I get all these, you know, cherries here. Which one do I want to eat? Or, you know, which which pearl of wisdom aligns with me and what works for me, what feels true to me. And to, again, come back to reclaiming, right? Reclaiming the birth, breastfeeding, you know, you as a woman being, you know, sovereign, reclaiming and going, I'm going to choose. I trust my own instincts here. Yes. And, and yes. Mm. Absolutely. And it, and I think we can lose that, particularly depending on the birth. And it, yeah. and also, you know, when you're a first time mom, you may have had lots of experience with babies. You may, it may be your first experience of being with baby. Mm. And so many women, you know, I actually had this conversation yesterday with someone who was like, I mean, they're going to leave me in charge with a baby. Like, they're going to send me home. And then what do I do with it? How will I know? I'm really frightened about this point. And, and it's so true. Like, it, it, we feel like, oh, my God, someone's allowed me to, to look after this human being. But you've been growing this baby and you've been developing your breasts throughout your whole pregnancy it's been preparing you for this and your instinct you know mothers know and that's the other thing is if you feel you're not getting the advice you need have a second opinion Mm. listen to your gut it Mm. will tell you and it will guide you on the right path but sometimes that's so hard because you're sleep deprived and you're getting so much information and so it is a tricky place to navigate um, and I think that's why we have, we have these difficulties in the postnatal period because it can feel overwhelming and you're tired. I mean, you're more than bloody tired mm-hmm. mostly. And if you've got sore nipples to boot, it plants a seed of doubt that you are doing something wrong. Mm. And I just want us to get that out of our head. You're never doing something wrong. Mm. It's just a learning phase. And don't wait to seek help. Yeah. And I also love that, you know, you said, which I always say to moms as well, like it's this diet. Yeah. So it's both you and your baby and it'll change. You might have a really bad experience, the first baby, and then the second works as a charm or the opposite. You might have breastfed the first baby without any problem. And then you have a second baby and you struggle. And it's because it's Mm. both of you. It's not just that you're going to have perfect nipples and perfect breasts and it's all up to you. It's actually just like birth. You're both birthing. You're both establishing breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. You're both going on this journey together. And, and your baby 
will also need to learn how to breastfeed with you. Yeah. And it is instinctual, but that depends on the birth as well. If you've ended up and you've had an emergency cesarean or you've needed to be induced and you've gone through that whole process and probably had an epidural and, you know, all of these things are not just impacting you and the birth, they impact the baby and how they respond when they're born. Mm. So if we talk about a physiological birth, these babies nearly all the time will will enter the the world that we're in, the grounded world and not this watery internal world, and they will come out, go on mum's chest, and all of those innate reflexes that we are born with as humans, like other mammals, are there for us to search and find the breast within that first hour. And once you've had that first breastfeed in that first hour, it kind of, it just, it's like a magical moment because it gives women the confidence to go, oh my God, my baby just did all of this themselves. And if a mum has missed out on that or she's had skin to skin contact, but perhaps she's had an epidural, she's had opiates, she's had a spinal Mm. most of these, most of our babies will take some time for the drugs to go through 12 Mm. to 48 hours. And they may not be ready to do that initial feed, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to get that. But what it means is it's really important to keep having that skin to skin contact. Mm. A lot of women will uh, maybe by the second or third day say, hey, do I still need to be doing skin-to-skin contact? And it's like, yeah, this is just not a one-off. It's not a ah, nice to do if you've got the time. This is kind of, in inverted commas, part of the treatment, mm. you know, or the the protocol to help with breastfeeding. Like it's one of mm. the most important things to get breastfeeding off to a good start. Mm. It allows babies to use their instincts. It gets... And also like this kind of laid back feeding where mums relax. What that does initially, it's actually she relaxes her shoulders. Mm. So it brings down her stress levels. The Mm. baby feels that. Um, And so I love this kind of positioning. And also sometimes we need much more structured positioning, depending on what's happened with the baby. If there's molding on that baby's head or caput, so, you know, the bones have changed shape and maybe the, the face is a little squished up for a bit. Um, and they look like they've got one Mickey Mouse ear. Um, that can affect the shape of their mouth and how they attach to the breast. It takes a couple of days for all of this to settle down. This is normal that we have unusual shaped heads sometimes at the beginning. Absolutely. And skin to skin is just something that I think you can do, well, all the time, forever, really. <laughs> like you shouldn't totally. really stop, really. Like you can do it at six weeks, you can do it at six months. Like just go skin to skin with your bum. Like it's the best thing, it's isn't it? Lush. <laughs> it's the luscious thing ever. So yeah, any opportunity, get naked. It doesn't mean you have to walk around naked. You can put your pajama top on, you know, especially if it's a button up one and you snuggle together. Oh gosh. I mean, obviously if you're in the really hot place like you are right now, you probably don't need to put any clothes on top. Just your baby and you is a sweaty bundle of joy. Exactly. I just want to add something before we jump on to the next one uh, that we're going to talk about. Um, is some women ask me or comment saying, you know, 
with the whole sore nipple thing uh, to prevent it to harden the nipple in pregnancy. Mm. Have you heard this? I would love to hear your advice on if mamas should harden their nipples in pregnancy or not. Oh, yeah, this is such a great question. This stems from years ago, actually. God, as midwives, like even in the 80s, and I've heard stories from the 90s, we would tell women, and I know you know because I can see your face, we would tell women to do the worst things to their nipples to harden them up, like getting like a hard bristle brush and (gasps) rubbing your nipples with it. Uh, You know, like if like a nail brush, that type of thing. No, no. and so we would do all of these things and guess what? They, they don't make any difference. You're just probably going to destroy the skin layer and cause pain before you've even got there. There is, there is no way to harden them. The body, you know, is growing the breast structure. Like the breast goes into this incredible amount of growth And you have, you know, the little dots around your areola, the brown or the pink bit around your nipple, Um, those little dots that you're probably seeing and they maybe come up a bit more, they're called Montgomery's glands, which I love this name, Uh, Montgomery's tubercles, and they release a sebum. So, and we think the sebum is both antibacterial, moisturizing and and releases a scent for the baby to find the breast and so your body is kind of protecting your areola and nipple in the best way it can um and yes at this point in time the research doesn't support doing any of these horrible things to your nipples to Mm. prepare them very good i love that answer brilliant All right, let's dive into the second uh, most common uh, issue that you come across with breastfeeding. Mm. So low milk supply or perceived low milk supply. I'll start with low milk supply because that tends to be the the first reason. So the reason why early breastfeeding doesn't succeed and perceived milk supply comes usually after the first month. Okay, so perceived is what we believe. So low milk supply is definitely a phenomenon, um, but it is caused by several factors. And it is also, we can counteract it by being proactive. So there is a very small proportion of women. And there's some studies that say maybe around 2% or 5%. We actually really don't know the proportion of women who have actually a reason they have underdevelopment of breast tissue um, due to certain syndromes they may have or complexities that have caused them never to have breast tissue development. But this is a very small proportion of women. Um, So I'm going to just talk about the general population, probably 99%, 95% of women. If things go well, they should all make enough milk. Now, this sounds kind of crazy because it doesn't seem like that. And we hear so many stories and we hear our mothers and our sisters and our aunties say, well, I never had enough milk or the classic, which I love. My milk was too thin and wasn't good enough for you. Don't even get me started. I'm not going to go there. Many, many doctors would say that, you know, a generation or two ago. 
Yep. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm keeping myself together because I'm like, hmm, we'll just stay calm. But like when I hear that, I really have to think before I speak to try and, okay, how do I give some information here? So most of us, nearly all of us can make enough milk, but not all of us have a physiological birth. You know, we have in most sort of uh, developed countries about a 30% cesarean rate. Mm. That also depends on whether you go to a public hospital, a private hospital, what if you choose midwife care, blah, blah, blah. This Mm. is all talked in depth on your podcast, Anna. (laughs) Um, If we have intervention in birth, the best way to think about it is we're probably going to need some kind of intervention to help with breastfeeding. It's a simple equation. The body is designed that the baby is birthed vaginally. It's having a huge amount of oxytocin hormone pumped through it, which is not only the hormone for contractions and falling in love and having orgasms and all these wonderful things. Oxytocin is also the hormone that squeezes the milk cells and pushes the milk down the ducts to your baby. So we need that along with other hormones, obviously, to make milk and other factors. If we have a baby who is uninterested in feeding or unable to feed at the beginning because they've had a difficult birth or they've had drugs on board, you know, meds, epidural, opiates, and they're sleepy, or they're born preterm, or they're born late preterm at 36 weeks, or early term. We've now seen research about these babies born between 37 and 39 weeks. They're considered term and fully healthy, and they're on the maternity ward, and we treat them as normal. But we have seen that these babies are more sleepy. They're less likely to feed as often. Um, And what the breast needs is basically, it's a bit like a factory. And once the baby's born, it's like you need to go into the factory and you need to switch all the light switches on and you need to switch all the machines on to get things working and being made. And so every time the baby breastfeeds, it's switching on the milk making cells. So what happens is when the baby sucks, it releases this surge of this hormone called prolactin. So there's these two hormones, prolactin and oxytocin. For me, prolactin is the chef. She makes the milk. Oxytocin is the waitress. She delivers it down the ducts to your baby. So we need babies to be feeding frequently to switch on these milk-making cells because the prolactin hormone needs to be switched on and it needs to basically connect itself into the milk making cell. Once the hormones in the cell, it goes, oh, okay, I've got to make some milk. I'm at work. I've got to get working. And it will make milk. And what we see and what we believe, there's a theory that if we don't switch on these milk making cells, we don't connect the cell with the hormone within about 72 hours, these cells will close down and they can't make milk. And so those cells won't open up again unless 
you give birth to another baby. Wow. So for some women, they, you know, women will say to me or midwives will say to me, hey, but I had women who just, you know, had a baby who was in the, uh, the special care baby unit, um, was born at 34 weeks. She didn't express much or she didn't feed much and she had loads of milk. And then you have the other woman who gave birth and she had a forceps birth, first 12, 24 hours, the baby was really sleepy, didn't feed much, no one pumped instead, sucking, replacing the sucking. Mm. And she has ended up formula feeding because she never made enough milk. Mm. And the reason for this is perhaps I've got, I don't know, these are purely made up numbers, 200,000 milk cells. Yeah. And if I don't feed my baby frequently, I'm not going to make enough milk. But you've got a million milk cells. And if you didn't feed your baby that frequently and switch on all of your milk-making cells, you were probably going to make enough for three babies. So your body's going to have enough milk. But the size of our breast doesn't tell us how much milk a mum can make because A lot of us, if we've ever lost weight or put weight on, where does it go? On our boobs. So there's a lot of fat in our boobs. Totally normal, totally fine, but it's about the breast tissue and the amount of milk-making cells we have, active Mm. tissue in the breast to make milk. So the rule of thumb is, one, don't worry about your breast size. What we need to worry about is frequent or early and frequent milk removal because this is laying down the foundation to switch on the milk-making cells to make sure that you make enough milk for now but also in the next 14 days and one month because what you are making by the end of that first month is what your baby will probably drink every single day until they're six months old. And on average, that's about 800 mils. Mm. So we have this early period to really switch everything on. And then we should see that the milk volumes increase or your milk comes in, which Mm. I think is a stupid phrase because your milk's already there. It's just called colostrum. It just massively increases in volume. You turn into Dolly Parton basically Mm. around (laughs) day three. And this is like, hallelujah. And you keep feeding frequently and the baby's draining the milk and that keeps giving signals back to your breast to keep producing. So in the beginning, you are building milk supply. And then once you get to one month, you're maintaining your milk supply. And if we have something that interrupts the building or the frequency of how often your baby can feed in those first few days, and we don't replace it with expression, Mm. the factory doesn't get turned on. Mm. And this is when we see in the research around 40% of women will not make enough milk if we don't do something proactively. And that's when I mean, if you've had intervention and your baby is unable to breastfeed for whatever reason or is born early, this is when we need to use some tools. And these are temporary tools to get you to have enough milk until your baby is able to breastfeed properly. Yeah. So the magic number, and I always sing this, and it's the song, 
but it's the, a different number. But it's eight is the magic number because eight times, eight or more in 24 yeah. is how often a baby should be feeding. That's the minimum. Mm. If they're not feeding that much, you're going to need to express mm. and you need to get in there early and you need to use the correct pump and hand expression, a combination of the two. Mm. Um, and that's the thing. And what's happening is particularly, say, just for example, take the research from women who've had cesareans. Baby's not interested in feeding or they may have a first feed. And then what we see is the next feed can be anywhere from, you know, nine to 20 hours. And if we're leaving that till 20 hours, we've nearly missed a day of feeds. Wow. And, um, and then if a mum's not being offered to and shown how to express, then we've missed a day. And even that can impact. So it's about having this knowledge when you go in about early and frequent stimulation of the breast mm. by my baby. And if my baby doesn't or can't do it for a little bit, it's a temporary thing. And until they can, I've got to use something else that will mimic the baby. Yeah. And then we should make enough milk, but mm. this isn't happening. What's not mm. happening is we're not getting in early or we're not giving mums the advice and we're saying, oh, just, you know, enjoy it while you can, have a sleep. Now that's fine. You know, after birth they should have a feed and then they probably sleep for six hours. Mm. Oh, my God, there is no way I want you to be disturbed in that six hours because it's probably the last time you're going to get six hours in a row sleep yeah. for a very long time. Please take the opportunity yeah. to sleep. Mm. <coughs> yeah if they've had that really good first feed and they you know tune out it's great if they have a longer sleep yeah absolutely. you're designed to mm. you're meant to you, you both need it yes exactly crumbs you totally need it there's no way I'm disturbing a mum after that mm -hmm. so this is not the time straight after birth I know it's easy for me to sit here and say that but this is not the time for you to go I've just got caught up with putting on social media that I've had my baby and texting everyone. Leave that yeah. either to later or to your partner. Seriously, this is your one opportunity probably yeah. to get a long period of sleep. Nature has designed it that there is so much oxytocin surging through in the beginning. Like it's the highest amount of oxytocin mm -hmm. you and your baby are ever going to experience. And actually what we see is they get quite a big feed. If you've ever noticed a baby have that first feed, you're probably hearing gulps of colostrum mm. on the postnatal ward or later at home during this colostrum phase. We're not hearing these big gulps. They're having much, much tinier amounts. Mm. Mums who express because their babies can't breastfeed in the first hour get much more in that first hour than they get afterwards. They might be getting two, three, four mils compared to like half a mil. Yes. So it's almost like the body has gone, oh, we're just going to stuff this baby up with ooh, a teaspoon full of milk. <laughs> and then that allows them to sleep for six hours because you are going to be awake every hour and a half for the next three days and possibly three four weeks and maybe a bit more if you have a baby who 
is at that end of the scale who feeds 12 times in 24 hours. And that's mm. normal. Eight to 12 times in 24 hours is a normal feeding pattern within that first four weeks. Yeah. And that's because nature needs you to feed frequently to switch on the milk making cells to make enough milk for now and the future. So really around about 10 to 12 to 14 days, we will see. So when we look at this research, we obviously we have research from full term infants, yeah. but we can really look at it with mums with preterm infants who are um, pumping and establishing volumes. And we've also, there's some good research by Jackie Kent from University of WA and she's looked at, so they've looked at, um, she looked at babies. There's a really lovely study from one month to six months of age and they did test weights. So they looked at what they were. They were all fully exclusively breastfeeding and thriving babies and mamas. And from this point on, they looked at what they were drinking and they would drink the same amount each day from about one month to six months. On average, that's about 800 mils. And babies were feeding anywhere from four to 13 times a day. And the least amount of milk with a baby that was thriving and gaining weight was about 450 mils. And the most was 1300 mils. But both those babies, there was only one of them at either end of the scale. Mm. most babies will feed somewhere between after a month, probably around six to eight or closer to 10 to 13. Mm. And this brings me on to the perceived low milk supply. Yes. Let's talk about that. So if we think about low milk supply and establishing it, this all really happens in those first four weeks. So what we do in those first four weeks is paramount. If you are at this point where your baby has lost weight, you're supplementing and you're expressing and breastfeeding and you just think, oh my God, you know, I've been told to express this amount of times. Do I really need to? I would just say, see how you feel. But really possibly after four weeks, it's very unlikely to be able to make a change. So if you can get it in your head, okay, this is just for another week or it's just for another two weeks. I'm going to just, I'm not going to go out. I'm going to just focus on this and I'm not going to do the cleaning or the washing and I'm going to get as much help and support as possible. If you can, I really don't want people to drive themselves insane. There is a a balance, but those first four weeks, this is kind of make or break. And after that point, with all the will in the world, with, with herbs, with, with, you know, I wish I had a magic wand, it's unlikely we are going to be able to boost your milk supply significantly. So first four weeks is very important. First three days, really important. First hour, really important. Mm. Once we get beyond that, we have women who are breastfeeding and we have lots of women who are breastfeeding brilliantly and they'll come in and ask and go, I don't know if my baby's getting enough milk. The first thing I often say is, Hold on, can we just can we just take a look at this baby? Look at the size of those thighs. Like I want to eat them. They are beautiful. There's there's so much fat on this baby. It's the one time in your life when you want to be called fat. Like, yeah. oh, so healthy. Just you are such a doing a great job. We also have babies who are breastfeeding and thriving who don't have really fatty, fatty boomba bottoms and thighs. And that's also okay. Yeah. But we live in a society 
that is predominantly bottle-fed culture. We live in a society that really values my baby sleeps for this amount of time, blah, blah, blah. And we, this just doesn't happen for a majority of us. Most babies who are breastfeeding digest their milk exceptionally quickly because there's not much waste. So it's perfectly formed and they need to feed every two to three hours. And so that leads us at 10, 12 feeds every 24 hours. And this usually settles down around four months. They get more efficient at feeding. They don't take as long um, and maybe three months and you get into the swing of things. But often women doubt themselves, even with this beautiful, healthy, chubby baby in front of them, meeting all their milestones, growing well. The seed of doubt is planted because someone else says, well, my baby feeds for six hours, uh, sleeps, sorry, for six hours, or my baby feeds every three and a half, four hours. And suddenly we think, what am I doing wrong? Because my baby feeds two hourly or an hour, every hour and a half through the day, and I only get a three or four hour block break at night. We cannot compare. Yes. You know. If we all sat down for a gorgeous dinner and say there's 10 of us, none of us would eat at the same pace. Mm. None of us would finish at the same time. Some of us go for seconds. Some of us don't even finish what's on our plate. And some of us go for thirds and then go for dessert. Yeah. Some of us are like, ah, do you know what? I'm I'm the person who goes, I'll eat this and then I might want dessert in an hour and a half. Some Mm. of us are like, oh my God, that chocolate mug cake uh looks great I'm gonna have that right now despite feeling full (laughs) yeah (laughs) yes and so you know yes like babies are not the same just like mamas are not the same and yeah love your funny that (laughs) I love your metaphors I love how you explain things it's so clever and it makes so much sense and I, I think all mamas listening are like Oh, yeah, of course, that makes sense. Do you also find that, because I've heard mamas, you know, say, oh, you know, all of a sudden, say at around six weeks, my breasts kind of felt flatter or like kind of, you know, they they were really big and fluffy, or not fluffy, but, you know, big and round. And then all of a sudden they, yeah, they just kind of went down a bit and they think, oh, I'm not producing enough milk anymore. Have you heard that? Oh, gosh, yes. It's (laughs) such a good thing to bring up. Yep. Basically, your body just goes, oh, right. So we only need this much milk. Oh, we don't need to be so big anymore. I mean, I'm just, I'm putting words inside our body's heads, but that's, that's what they're thinking. Yeah. Um, and basically the body just kind of sort of goes back to sort of pre-pregnancy and it just makes enough milk for that feed. And so they soften and they go smaller in size but it does not mean you're not making enough milk. It just means your body has gone, ah, I got this. Yeah. Ah, we're good. And that might be anywhere from six to nine weeks, Mm. but it can be quite sudden. And it is definitely when mums think, I've lost all my milk. Yeah. What I'm going to say is take three deep breaths, look at your baby. The way to tell if your milk has gone down is because what goes in has got to come out. (laughs) So, wet and dirty nappies and also the poos change around four to six weeks so they might not be pooing every day and they might some of them might go a whole week without a poo 
let me tell you, you are going to have the mightiest explosion you have ever seen. You know, when they call them number threes and they go up into the <laughs> ear holes and, and you're just like, there's just not enough wipes in the world to, to deal with this. It's just when you're in the back of the car and um, you have the biggest explosion and actually the only way to clean them. Have I gone again? No, you're here. Am I here? No one wants me to talk about when you're in the back of the car with the biggest explosion and there's no wipes that can deal with it. It's just like, just put this kid in a bucket of water. Like there is nothing else because that poo is ginormous, but you start to get to know their rhythms. So in the first four weeks, it's really important to be looking at their wet and dirty nappies. And also if you've got any fears, go and talk to someone. Yeah. So if you had a first time mama in front of you right now, who's about to have her first baby and she really wants to have a natural and empowering birth. And also she really wants to get off a good start at breastfeeding. What advice or pearls of wisdom would you give to her? Firstly, trust your instinct. Mama instinct is so strong, so Mm. powerful. You are going to get so much advice. Some of it will be awesome. Some of it won't sit right. And don't feel pressured to do stuff that doesn't feel right. The other thing is, please allow yourself to rest. You're about to do a hell of a lot of night shifts. Okay. And I can't change that. It's just what we do as humans. And most babies come out wanting to feed more at night. Eventually they change. Some of them. Some of them don't. But give yourself a break. Just as much skin-to-skin contact as possible. Don't put any big plans on yourself. If you have visitors, do not be the one who's making cups of tea. They can make their own tea because actually they feel like they're doing something and they probably will enjoy helping you. Don't be frightened to ask for help and support, whether that's from a health professional or lactation consultant, your midwife, or from your friends in terms of, can you just do my washing? Or I don't want presents from anyone. Can I get a gift voucher that someone will come around and do my washing once a week for two weeks? Or can I get a gift voucher from you that you'll make me two home-cooked meals? in the first few weeks. Mm. Simple, simple things of love and mother instinct that just this period is a transition period. Don't beat yourself up. Take it slowly. You're both learning together Mm. and it will come, but it takes time and that's okay. So just be with your baby, listen to your instinct and just snuggle naked and enjoy it and sleep when you can. Mm. Mm. That's Beautiful. Oh, brilliant advice. Just that's it. That's it. Perfect. It's been such a pleasure to have you on speaking so wisely and with so much humor about breastfeeding. Thank you.
It's been just a joy to be here. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you love this podcast, then please share it. Grade it on iTunes and leave a comment. If you want to connect on social media, you can find me on Facebook as The Spiritual Midwife or on Instagram as The underscore Spiritual underscore Midwife. Thank you for listening.